Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tulsa World Opinion video podcast. I'm Jenny Graham, editorials editor. Bobby said editorial writer and columnist. That's right. We're both columnists. The columns, if we could, we could just write columns. We do so much else here at the Tulsa World. Oh, sure. For the readers to make sure you're informed, that you're thinking analytically. Um, and to kick it off, we've been having a lot of uh, meetings with candidates lately with our editorial board. And uh, education comes up a lot. One of the things that I wrote about this week that's come up is that I did not, we'd heard it before, but we went back and verified it. There are, we've talked a lot about the teacher shortage, that we are now a little over 3,800 emergency certified teachers, which is a huge thing because emergency certified means the person teaching the class has no certification. They've not been trained as an educator. They haven't taken tests to get certifications that they know the, that they know anything about what they're doing. It used to be rare. It used to be only like 32 just 10 years ago, and now we're almost at 4,000. But we have 33,000 teachers in Oklahoma who have certifications and are choosing not to teach. Mm. They've I thought they were retired, but of that 33,000, only 3,000 are at 65 or older. So that leaves 30,000 people in this state who are paying to keep their license valid that are choosing just not to work for various reasons. That's astonishing. I mean, that's so if we need 4,000 teachers across the state, we've got a group of 30,000 who, for whatever reason, are not teaching. And I find that it kind of takes it, it takes that whole teacher pipeline discussion in a different way to me because it really shows that we are just running off experienced teachers yeah for various reasons and i'm sure pay is part of it but i bet respect and just what we ask of teachers is a big part of it that you know you want good to, and, and the anti-public school crowd what's really frustrating me they're upset over student outcomes right which we all are we want better student outcomes but we're, it's almost like Oklahoma's fine or have, have gotten cool with for the last decade using unqualified teachers in the classroom. Yeah. So if you put thousands and thousands of unqualified people in classrooms, well, of course you're not going to get great results. It's like, you know, plumber flying a plane. You're, it's not going to be a good landing. You know, you might survive it, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe it's a bad analogy. I don't know, but... <laughs> but 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 and, and I know some emergency certified teachers. They are well-meaning and they're doing it for, you know, they want to help. But at the end of the day, it teaching is about classroom management. It's teaching to different learning styles. I mean, if if math comes naturally to you, you might have a very hard time teaching it to a kid who hates math and has no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. That's what we send teachers to school for. So, um, but that came up, I mean, you were in that discussion with me. Yeah. What were your thoughts on, because the, the question becomes, well, how do we lure people back into a job? I wonder if that is not a winning strategy to come up with an initiative of, hey, come back to the class. Because that is a turnkey ready to go these are people who have experience in teaching they've got their certifications and there are openings there is a need 
So I kind of wonder if there is a way, sort of a recruitment drive to make that happen. But yeah, I'm thinking along the same lines that you are in this, is that there's a lot of reasons why these teachers are not in the classroom. Some of them may be just completely personal reasons. You know, they had a bunch of kids and somebody had to stay home for a little while or something like that. Or maybe they just found, like you said, a money thing. But we know from listening to educators, whether they're administrators or teachers, whatever, that the stresses of the classroom, the disrespect that they are feeling from the state, and in some cases from uh, from state, you know, state officials, parents, whatnot, it's it's a lot. It's a big load, and when you add in what the pandemic did and how much harder that made it. I mean, honestly, I don't know how they do it. I don't either. But we've got to find a way to get these qualified people back into the classroom, you know, sooner rather than later, because it's nice that we started to see state and city test scores start to tick up again, but we've got such a long ways to go. Right. So That's this is a no-brainer. This is something we should all agree on that we want to have a strong public school system and we need to do everything we can to make that happen. I don't see why why that's controversial. I don't see how you can't just not unify around that. Mm-hmm. And we've got some people who are out there right within our borders who are ready to go. And and what's interesting is that back when emergency certifications were rare. One of the big things I remember the discussion around if they approved, the state board approved it, was do they have a master teacher helping? Because the idea is whether it's a young teacher right out of college or an emergency certified teacher, an alternative certified teacher, that the idea is if you have an experienced teacher next to you, kind of within that, it's it's like any job. I mean, you know, when we when I started, I had mentors in the newsroom who sort of helped me learn things. And it's it's no different. And so if you don't have any of those older mentor teachers, then, then you've lost a lot. You, you've lost that learning curve that um, people who can walk through that learning curve with you. So, um, so to me that I wanted people to kind of ponder that as we're moving into this next session and this next mm-hmm. election, that it's about retention as much as recruitment of yep. new teachers. But you know, that was one issue that's been brought up a lot. Another one that's starting to crop up a lot is a frustration among candidates of both sides, dark money. Yeah. And, and we've written a lot about that and people have have to understand that. And and we've had people challenge us like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you covering, finding out who's behind this? Well, since Citizens United, which is a Supreme court case, the campaign reporting is difficult. and sometimes it's just impossible to know who's behind things. And our reporter, Randy Crable, who's a political reporter, he's written a lot about that, that legally things can dead end at an LLC mailbox. A company yep. that's an LLC, it's a mailbox in Jersey. And we have no idea who's behind it. And it's very frustrating and destructive, really, to not know yeah. who's the money and the power behind some of these candidates and some of these campaigns. Technically, dark money groups cannot work with candidates. And in some cases, the candidates have liked what dark money groups have done. Mm-hmm. But the idea that somehow, I, I always tell people, we don't have 
as the you know the press special subpoena media powers, we're depending on the transparency and open records that our law allows. Mm-hmm. And right now, it's not allowing much, which got into the Disclose Act. And I'm going to let you because you yeah. did a lot of digging into the into the Federal Disclose Act. Yeah, the Disclose Act was going to make it just real simple out here. It was going to make it to where if you contributed 10000 or more dollars, I think that was the right figure, to one of these LLCs or nonprofits that are behind these political donations, we got to know who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, because of the crazy Senate rules that we have, if you get a certain number of senators vote to block a bill, it doesn't get heard and doesn't get voted on. So 49 Republicans in the U.S. Senate voted to block passage of the Disclose Act or hearing the Disclose Act. That included both of our Oklahoma senators. So it's just sitting out there in some sort of legislative, you know, limbo right now. I think purgatory was the year was the word I used. So it's kind of going nowhere. And I think that was a huge missed opportunity because exactly to your point what we are hearing is you know candidates from both parties are being affected by this it's not the case of well the democrats in the senate put this thing up because of some perceived unfair edge that they think republicans are getting not in this state baby i mean not even close in a state auditor's race all of a sudden you've got a basically a a non-performing, non-participating candidate going up against the incumbent state auditor Republican, and suddenly 600 grand comes into the race with attack ads against her. That's interesting. Yeah, and uh, and this is the, and, she, and the candidate running against her, like you were saying, was like a ghost. Like not doing anything. And then not, on the governor's I mean, side, we didn't know, it would not return. Yeah. On the governor's side, he had over seven and a half million dollars in dark money ads going to television Mm -hmm. against him during the primary. Who oh this this, who was this? This was our governor. A governor. Yeah. Governor Stitt had seven point six million dollars worth of television ads booked during the primary attacking him. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a democratic thing you know, trying to get somebody to vote for a Democrat over him. This was in the Republican primary. And we have really no idea who these people are. We can guess, but guessing doesn't get you. Right. Well, and in the Tulsa public schools race, there was one, one race that I think, what was it? Somewhere between 40 and 60 grand was spent in dark money against that candidate. What a campaign for a legislative seat would cost in the state legislature. And that, that puts in, what it is, is that it's giving power to these secret groups. I mean, people have the, all these conspiracy theories that they build up, but, but without having laws that say, you have to come forward and tell us who your donors are, because these are gr- nonprofit groups and they get money from donors and they are, and they don't, and the law doesn't force them to tell us who their donors are. Here's, and so, here's the thing that I wanna throw out there for everyone to understand where we are with Citizens United as it stands. How we want to be and how campaign finance laws were is that anybody could donate, but there were limits and it was public. You knew what was going on. It was trying to make it to where nobody's say, nobody's money or anything was going to be so influential that it was going to basically 
cast a shadow over a candidate that you're owned. What we have right now is one guy, imagine some multi-billionaire with a bunch of money could establish some kind of a, a front LLC or nonprofit with the sole purpose of influencing an election and throw millions of dollars at it and you won't know who that person is. And if that person's efforts help somebody get elected, I mean, you tell me, that person's probably gonna owe that rich mega donor a few votes here or there down the road. Well, you That's have to problem because even, now even we're going, that, but, but sometimes a candidate might not know who that person is, but, yeah, but by not knowing who sure. the donor is, well, but, but you have to think what, what, why are they against a person or for a person? What's the, what are they going to benefit from? And that, that's the part of that transparency that if we don't know who's influencing this, then how do we know the, what the public policies are coming well, up? It also puts the, the influence from what right. a large voter base to a small group of people, small group of very wealthy Entities or individuals are now basically override everybody else. That's the scenario we're looking at right now. I think the Disclose Act was an attempt to claw back some of that, put power back into the hands of just normal people. But for some reason, you got a large group of senators that was like, nope, we don't want to do that. I think that was a mistake. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, uh, but I will, the, the yes. And I was kind of thinking of, um, I was thinking, you know, in, in terms of elections in general. And I have to give a shout out to our reporter, Kevin Canfield, who has done, a, of course, we all know Kevin, the great American. Oh, yeah. He's a fantastic American, that Kevin Canfield. But he did some great stories this week on the election board harassment. Doing the people's and, work. Yeah, he's doing the people's work. He definitely is. He, I know the read readers and viewers probably don't know who Kevin is, but you should because he's too funny. But he did a great job talking about what election board workers are going through right now and precinct workers. And it is it is horrifying to me because what is, what's the heart of our democracy? It's free and fair elections, right? Well, ever since 2020 and the big lie that, that Trump lost, and he did, I'm sorry, he did disagree, but it, he did. But all of this conspiracies around election fraud and election processes, it's just, it's really whipped people up into a frenzy to where there are physical threats being made against election board workers. And these are people that are, that are just, I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's their job. They're just doing their job. They're not, but they're being caught up in this national extremist talking points and it's always sort of, I mean, I've gone down this rabbit hole, so have you, and they, there's arguments about election machine algorithms and different kind of things, you know, the, how the machines work, and there's all of these different th crazy ideas, but they've never panned out, they've never been proven, 62 court cases, nothing, all kinds of investigations, nothing, but election board workers in, in in Tulsa County, they now are having, and it's not just Tulsa County, it's across the, the state where they're getting a ton of open records requests. This is kind of one thing. And open records requests are 
you know, you have to fill them. And it's just looking for information. It's a transparency law, but they, it can be weaponized. And that's what's happening is they, there was in the latest one, the MyPillow guy, why people think the MyPillow guy is brilliant. I have no idea, but the MyPillow guy had a two day conference in Springfield that told people how to go to their election boards and what to ask for to prove that the elections are, you know, fraudulent or whatever. 60 requests came in to the Tulsa County Election Board in the month after that concluded. And they, and t- t- for comparison, open records requests before that were sporadic. It was maybe one or two a month. And it was usually, it's usually for something sort of innocuous. But these requests are written in ways that literally don't make sense. Like they're using phrases that don't exist in our election processes. They're using words to get at our election machines, but these machines aren't the ones we're using. It's just taking these national talking points, cut and paste, and just flooding our election boards across the state to where workers that normally have other jobs to do are now being taken away to try to figure out what this is. They have to get legal guidance on what they can legally give because the people making the requests obviously don't know the Oklahoma election process, and they don't know the open records laws. You can't just go in and look at someone's ballot that they filled out. And they've had people show up and say, I want to see all the ballots from 2020. That's, you know, 1.2 million ballots in Oklahoma were cast. So, and if they don't get them, then they think, you know, they're filming them and they think of laws being broken and it's making people leave. And then they, the other part of it is just some are being physically threatened. Yeah. I know one election board secretary uh, was talking to me. They're mm. doing uh, gunman drills. Their, their law enforcement has been called. So they're going through drills in case a gunman shows up. That's where we're at in Oklahoma. And we can't get precinct workers now. We lack almost 400 workers right now for the November election. I mean, that means problem. that means precincts aren't going to open. Where you're used to voting, that may be shut down. So what's that going to lead to? Long lines, long waits. People are going to give up and not vote. I mean, this there this has real consequence. Well, let's just be honest about Mike Lindell from My Pillow Fame and his <laughs> types. They are actively involved in a operation pouring sugar into the gas tank of our election system i don't i don't know how else to say it but that's the truth they are trying to make it harder for election workers to do their job unless they get the results after an election that they like Mm -hmm. i cannot think of something that is less democratic and less and more un-american than trying to sabotage the election process and people being able to freely cast a vote without, you know, having to endure giant lines or voter intimidation or anything like that. This, this noise needs to stop. That's my quick thoughts on that kind of a thing. And, you know, we got, we got to get some sanity back into the process. And we're starting to hear from a lot of candidates, both parties, both parties, whether it's, higher office or something more on the local level that voters are tired of the 
you know, kind of fight, got to do this. We got to, you know, get really negative, get very combative. People want reason to return. And that right there will go a long ways in making sure that when we go to the polls, it's like how it used to be. You show up, you do your best to hopefully get the person you want in office. And if they win, you're happy. And if they lose, you're bummed. But we accept the results and move forward. Mm-hmm. And if they're if they're doing a good job, they get reelected. And if they don't, we throw them out. Mm-hmm. But we do it at the ballot box and we do it fairly. And if we're going to wreck that system, what are we? Right. And and I, I do want to hold accountable these people that are spreading these lies and these false narratives and and whipping and, and encouraging people to harass our election board workers and our precinct workers. And I've they've had problems of even, you know, we have laws that say you can't campaign within a certain, you know, on election day within a certain number of feet. And we have people constantly trying to break that. And we have people who want to, they want to do things that are just not, they're not reasonable. And we have, Oklahoma is one of the most secure elections in the nation. Yep. I mean, we have, we have paper ballots. Those machines are tabulating. They're not, nothing's over the internet that can be hacked into. We keep the paper ballots for hand counting, which we have had, mm-hmm. but people don't want to even learn enough about their own state's process. And in Oklahoma, this is what got me. No one's disputing the results. I mean, yeah. Trump yeah, won, won by like Oklahoma. what sixty five or seventy five percent. I mean, it was pretty. No yeah, one's he, he won two to one in Oklahoma easily. Oh yeah, yeah. So we still have people who want to take up his cause and come to Oklahoma and and what prove that he won? Like he did. I mean, we accept that. So Trump in won. We had every House of Representatives office go Republican. <laughs> you know. Everything that went, everything that you wanted to go your way as a Republican, pretty much in Oklahoma, went your way. It's not like these are in dispute. Yeah, I don't even know if this here. is a. Some, I mean, all these extremists, and I'm going to call them that, because if you go to a two day conference with a my pillow guy and then come back wanting to harass workers, you're, you've got to make, you've got to ask yourself some questions in life, you know, but. I don't think they represent the Republican Party. I, I really don't. I think the Republican Party has has a moderate side. I just want them to speak up and say, you know what, this is not us. If you're coming, if this is what you're doing, it's us. But the other thing that Gwen Freeman, our election board secretary, mentioned that this has led to precinct workers, people not wanting to work at the precinct on election day. Yeah. And we were talking 350 to 400 people we are lacking right now with a little over a month. You know, that's a, a big problem. She said another thing that they're having problems with is a lot of these political ideologues want to be precinct workers. And they've had some problems apparently in the past of people who want to take that role and yet, you know, kind of give voters a hard time. You know, yeah. if they come up and ask for a ballot of the, uh, you know, of the other party during the primary or whatever it is. So they also have to be, they can't just take anybody. They want to make sure that the people that come forward and in, in talk of, come forward are not the zealots, that these are people who, like in the past, they just want to do something patriotic. I mean, there's so little money. I think you get like 45 or $75 a day, something. So they're not doing it for the money. But I can't think of anything more 
you know, in tune with community service and public service than giving your whole day, you know, 12 hours of your day to, to making sure the election runs smoothly and that you're there to make sure that happens. Mm -hmm. And yet we're treating them this way. It's not right. Wrong. It's wrong. Not wrong. You know what else is wrong? Nazis. Nazis Nazis were bad. Talk about harassing those Nazis. They were bad. Well, and that, that's bad. I mean, it was serious. But you, but you and I were both watching the Ken Burns yes. documentary. I'm not quite done with it. So you you were incredibly moved by it to the point you're writing about. I yeah. will tell you in the time that I've gotten through so far, what got me was the, uh, the immigration laws and how that sort of led and inspired the Nazis to make the laws they did that eventually led to the Holocaust. And I was thinking the whole time, wow, America hasn't learned when it comes to those immigration laws. We still hear that same kind of rhetoric against certain people that we don't want in. Yep. That, you know, and I'm always, and I was watching that thinking, <laughs> I hope everyone watches this because it's yeah. just, we don't seem to learn. But you watched the whole thing and wrote about it. Yeah. What, what inspired you to write about basically watching a documentary? One thing that Ken Burns does that I appreciate uh, in a lot of his documentaries that I've watched is he does a really good job at showing the the best in America, mm-hmm. but doesn't flinch at showing us the worst of it. And when you look at how the United States is in terms of uh, dealing with people coming to the country to be, you know, for a new life in the United States. Our history is very much uh, founded on people coming here, seeking a better life, making something in themselves. And the next thing you know, they, they're an American success story. And we've seen this repeated millions of times over. Um, We have had times of absolute heroism and how we've, dealt with folks who are looking to us for safety to come here and be safe. After the Vietnam War, I didn't mention this in the column, but after the Vietnam War, we had a pretty major effort to get Vietnamese out of Vietnam who may have suffered at the hands of the the communists when they took over. Um, You know, my mom is a great example of somebody who's an immigration success story. She came over after she married my dad, Air Force Airman. She's German. She didn't speak the language. She didn't know much about American culture, you know, back in this, back in the early 60s. And she has worked in many different jobs, had a career in nursing, had a side business going on, and she's lived a very happy life here in the United States. She's a success story. But on the other side of that is exactly what you were mentioning. A lot of our, our Jim Crow laws the laws that we had towards uh, indigenous peoples, what we did to them in the 17, 1800s and so forth. Um, our immigration laws, the quotas that we used to have, very selective. Some people were okay. Some people, yeah, we don't want very many of them. The Nazis looked at that as a blueprint for what they eventually morphed into the Holocaust. That's, ooh, that's very sobering stuff. So I kind of took a, a dive into that. It's like, you know, here we are at our best and it is awesome 
you know, you go to one of these naturalization ceremonies and that's like, it'll just, it'll make your heart swell, man. It makes you very proud to be an American, to see that and see how happy these people are to be an American. And then you go to the other side of us where we got people preening in front of the border wall and they just complain about immigration and talk about being invaded by all these foreigners and stuff like that. You know, basically <clears throat> creating this otherism where folks who are trying to get here cannot navigate our broken immigration system. The people who could do something about that refuse to do anything about it except complain about the people who are trying to get here. And it brings out the worst of us. It brings out things that ultimately lead to marginalization and sometimes violence against folks who just don't look, talk, or act, or believe the way the mass, the majority believes it should be. And that's, it's a polar opposite of what we say we are. Well, and you know, when I was, the, the hard thing about governing is so much of it is boring in the weeds type of thing. And immigration is very much that if it's you hard. look into it. It is, when we say a broken immigration system, the people are showing up and, and undocumented. It's because they don't have a way to get here legally. And there was a time, you know, long ago, my ancestors came here. There were no immigration laws. They showed up and let in as long as they didn't have, you know, certain diseases. That's, that's different now that you have to have sponsorships and you have to, and if you don't have that, you have to have all of these things in place. It's that costs thousands of dollars in fees that a lot years. of people don't have. If yep. you even have the certain kinds of, I've, I've always argued that our immigration system should be based on a workforce type need. And yeah. it shouldn't be governed by partisan lawmakers who just set random quotas or set random things. Right now, we have a workforce shortage. We need able-bodied people who are willing to work, who are willing to be trained. And we have that. We have a country that has welcomed people in the past. And yet we aren't seeing those in power in Congress sitting down and saying, okay, let's get into the weeds here. How can we, looking at our workforce needs, where can we get people in? What can we do to ensure the safety of our country, certainly, but get some workers in here, get, you know, let's, let's be that welcoming country because we need more people. And frankly, when you look at it, Tulsa has only grown because of immigration. Exactly. Our, our population has only grown because immigrant families chose to live here and are staying here and growing here. And there's some research out of the, I think it's the Pew Research Center that showed of the undocumented population that has been in place, a growing number are have been here 15 or more years. That shows they're living here, um, you know, not committing crimes while they're here. They're contributing in some way. They have no intention of leaving. So why not start thinking, okay, how can we address this population that wants to live here, that mm -hmm. wants to make their home here, who are having kids here? We have the Dream Act kids the original Dream Act is like 22 years old now. They're hitting maybe middle older. age. Yeah, it's maybe like, older. Exactly. So at what point are we going to recognize that we're so far on, on updating those policies? And when I was watching that Ken Burns 
documentary and talking about the immigration and how restrictive it was, and it's still restrictive. And what damage are we doing now that we could change that would really make a difference? And I'm I'm not hearing any of that. I'm not hearing any real ideas on how we fix the system, not just the border. You know, there's there's two thoughts I had with that. The the first thought is that the old school immigration restrictions on refugees and things like that going into the 1930s and 40s probably stopped Anne Frank and her family from being able to come to America. They had applied, they were on a waiting list, but it was so prohibitive because at the time, European Jews were among a class of people that the State Department had a thing against and that in general, you just didn't see a lot of sympathy for that. So had we been more open, had we been more to our ideals, uh, Anne Frank's father would not have been the only person to have survived Nazi persecution. The whole family probably would have been here, living a life, and been okay. So think on that. The next thing I would say, and this is, this is a challenge to our, our congressional lawmakers, before you go parade yourself in front of the southern border, head to Eagle Pass, go to that bridge, and parade about complaining about floods of people coming over and fentanyl, which fentanyl's coming in through our ports of call. That's not coming over the river or whatever. Before you do that again, give us a proposal. Give us something that works. Talk to business leaders and say, what do you need? Talk to people who are operating farms that need these migrant laborers. What do you need? What will work? How can we ease this transition to where we satisfy their needs, workforce needs, and also give these people who want to come here and work and have a new life the opportunity to build something amazing like our descendants did, because that is who we say we are. Let's try to do that instead of just throwing our hands up, complaining and demonizing anybody that doesn't look like us. I'm kind of, I'm done, kind of done with that. Well, I say I, that documentary you wrote about it, and it it, it is inspiring, and it, it should make people think because it was really. And I want to say, okay, everyone that comes in to talk to us, have you watched that Ken Burns documentary? I won't be that Good. person. So you know. Good. Well, another week down. Hope everyone's enjoying their, their weekend. And uh, uh, we've got, I'm going to a high school homecoming. That'll be interesting. I'm sure you're going to be hiking some mountain somewhere. Who knows and, about uh, Huh? No, no mountains. Who knows, who knows what I'm doing? We don't have no mountains here. Yeah, Turkey Mountain. You talk about that all the time. Yeah, I need to get in mountain shape. I've, I've proven that I am not in mountain shape uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, yeah, I'm going to work on well, that. <laughs> Well, anyway, I hope everyone has a good weekend and uh, we will talk to you next week. Adios.